Please open your copy of God's Word to Galatians chapter 2. And get ready for us to talk about the boogeyman. We've got the convergence of two big events this week. Halloween is Tuesday. But so is the celebration of the Protestant Reformation. The the 500th anniversary, in fact, of uh, what we sort of celebrate and commemorate as its beginning. The latter event celebrates the recovery of the gospel in the church. The former celebrates ghouls and ghosts and goblins, monsters and, and other boogeymen, things that don't really exist. This morning in Galatians and with the convergence of these events this week, I want to talk to you about this this boogeyman, a mythical creature that doesn't really exist, what I'm calling the gospel boogeyman. So let me give you a little background before you think I've completely lost it. In Galatians, as his main argument, Paul has put forth a fundamental contrast between works of the law on one side and faith in Christ on the other. They're pitted against one another. There's no mingling of the two. They are on opposite poles, opposite ends of the spectrum. Salvation, Paul argues passionately, is from one or it is from the other, but not both. And so last week, uh, covering these same verses, but uh, particularly honing in on verse 16 in chapter 2, we saw how three times Paul reiterated in in a single verse that we are justified by faith in Christ to the exclusion of works of the law. Or to put it another way, your obedience, my obedience to the law of God plays no role whatsoever in our being saved. Zero. Now, if that's true, it will eventually lead to an important question. It always does. And I've I've phrased it, worded it, printed it in the worship folder there for you at the top of the, the outline for the sermon. Here's the question that salvation by faith alone always leads to. If I am saved without obedience to the law, then why obey? If I'm saved apart from obedience in any regard, well then why obey? And see, it's in that question that the gospel boogeyman lurks and hides. We're going to turn our attention to the text this morning so that we can then turn the lights on and scare off the boogeyman. So I'd like to ask you to stand, if you're able, for the reading of Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21, the same passage that we began to cover last week. This is God's word. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, 
Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. May God bless the preaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, would you please come now and give us the help that we so desperately need. Our, Our minds don't think the way that they ought to because of the fall. Our hearts are still hardened at times and We're slow to hear. We're certainly slow to take what we've heard and put it into practice. And so, Lord, we need your help. We need your grace even in these moments. So come and be generous and pour it out. We're ready to receive it. We pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. The Gospel Boogeyman is that if we really are justified, if we really are made right with God only by faith in Christ without any obedience on our part, well, the boogeyman is that we won't obey. That we'll be lazy, that we'll be undisciplined, that we'll be immoral, that we'll be licentious good-for-nothings. The boogeyman is that the Life according to a law-free gospel won't be pretty. Our lives will be full of sin and unrighteousness. That's what I think is at the core of verse 17. Verse 17, we've got to admit, it's a, little, it's a little strange. It's a little puzzling. These questions that Paul is asking, will we be found to be sinners? Will Christ be a servant of sin as we pursue being justified by him and him alone? And not on the additional basis of our obedience to the law. See, Paul asks this question as if he's anticipating someone else raising it as an objection. It's him saying, I know what you're thinking. And so I'm going to beat you to the punch. And I'm going to raise this question for you. But before you have the chance, I'm going to say, certainly not. See, this fear that faith in Christ will lead to immoral lives is a common objection. Ah, that's just cheap grace. You mean there's nothing I have to do? That's just cheap grace. That's all that is. It's a common objection, and it's one that Paul faced. See, people were quick to connect the dots between a law-free gospel and the possible outcome. 
an increase in sin. This is very similar. In fact, when I first began studying and read through, I said this other passage immediately popped into mind. And thinking we were going to be blowing in the wind down there, I printed it for you in the worship folder. So you don't even have to turn in your Bibles. Romans 5. Paul does the exact same thing. He raises the question so he can shoot it down before they have the opportunity to do it. Look at Romans 5, beginning in verse 18. See, in this passage, Paul has been showing how the one man, Jesus Christ, sets right what the one man, Adam, had ruined in the fall. Verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 1 of chapter 6. What shall we say then? Here it is. I'm anticipating it. You're about to throw this up in my face. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might abound? By no means. God forbid. Certainly not, Paul says. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And see, here's the heart of the gospel in verse 19 of that passage. By one man's obedience, we're made righteous. Not by our obedience. His. And only his. Ours doesn't factor in. We add nothing. We're made right with God completely apart from anything that we do. So, connecting the dots, jumping to a seemingly logical conclusion, right? if we don't have to obey to get this salvation, does that mean that there's a chance that we might never obey? I will concede to you, and I think you should concede for yourselves, that that is a theoretical possibility. See, you're saved, justified, made right with God without you ever lifting a finger, without you ever obeying a single law. So it is possible, in theory, And only in theory and never in reality. Because see, I'm going to show you by the end, by point four, why we will obey. We will. But for now, you need to see it as at least a possibility. Because if you can't see that, that you're saved without ever lifting a finger, then you've never really understood the gospel of grace. Because it is just that scandalous. It is just that too good to be true. Paul got accused of preaching cheap grace. 
And anyone who rightly understands the gospel will be accused of the same from time to time. That is just the scandalous nature of the gospel. So the boogeyman is that faith in Christ alone, without the contribution of my obedience to the law, will lead to immorality and laxity, loose living. And see, that boogeyman spooks a lot of people. A lot of well-intentioned people leading them to the wrong solution. Point number two in your outline. See, it's what happened to Peter. If you remember a few weeks back, a few verses back, Peter had embraced the law-free gospel only to get spooked and add the law back in just to be safe. He added it back in for fear of being caught in sin. But this is the wrong solution. Verse 18. See, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. All right, so let's think about this. You mean to tell me that in an attempt to avoid sin, I add back the law and sin in the process? Yes, that's exactly what I mean to tell you. That's exactly what Paul means to tell you. And that's exactly what happens. In an attempt to ensure my right standing with God, adding back in the law as a requirement, I do just the opposite and I lose my right standing if indeed I ever had it. So why is this the wrong solution? Why is adding the law back in a wrong solution? Three reasons I put them there in the outline for you. Number one, it's inconsistent. It's inconsistent, number one, with your own actions. Because if you add back the law, you admit, just like it says in verse 18, that you're a transgressor. You admit, I was wrong in the first place to trust Christ alone. I was wrong in the first place to try to do this only by faith in Christ. And so now when I add the law in, in this inconsistency, I admit I was wrong. I become a transgressor. But even worse than that, adding back the law is the wrong solution because it's inconsistent with what Christ has done. See, Christ, by perfectly fulfilling the law himself, tore the law down as a requirement. He tore it down. Ephesians 2.14. You don't have to turn there, but note that and go back and look at that. Ephesians 2.14. For he himself, Jesus Christ, is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments. Friends, we can't add back what Christ tore down. That will never work. It's inconsistent. Second reason that it's the wrong solution, number two, is that it's completely selfish. It is absolutely and entirely selfish. If we add back the law, and if we obey in hopes of being accepted by God, that's a completely selfish pursuit. Can't you see that? For your own gain, for your own good, there's no way that will be pleasing to the Lord. It's obedience for the entirely wrong motive. The third reason it's the wrong solution 
is because that's not what the law is for. Adding back the law is the wrong solution because that's not what the law is for. The law lacks the power to bring about righteousness. The law lacks the power to change our lives and our hearts, to make us more like Jesus. The law doesn't move us in that direction. It does just the opposite. It doesn't make us righteous. It shows us that we're sinners. It reveals our sin and our rebellion. Just like those Romans 5 verses that we read, the law came in to increase the trespass, that we might see what great need in which we stand. The law condemns us. It brings us not to life, but to death. Point three. Paul eventually got this, but he didn't always get it. He eventually saw what the law was intended to do, but that's only after living the first half of his life using the law as a ladder to climb his way up into God's acceptance. He used the law for religious success. Paul's earlier testimony would be, through the law, I had life. But then he came face to face with the risen Lord Jesus. And that all came crashing down around him. And all of a sudden he could see things as they actually were. All of a sudden he could see this righteousness that he thought he'd been racking up was a sham. And so he came to this point where eventually he saw that the law led to death rather than life. And so now his testimony is, through the law, I died to the law. There are two ways to understand this dying to the law, and we need both of them. The first is we die to the law by realizing what an impossible standard it sets for us. That unless we are perfect, there's no way we can meet its demands. So the first way that through the law we die to the law is we die to any hope of it saving us. Second way to understand it is an actual death, an actual dying, the death that the law itself prescribes as penalty and curse for failing to live up to its impossible demands. The law says, here is my standard, meet it or die. So Paul says, through the law, I died to the law. So here's here's some of the good news here. There's lots more good news to be had, but here's the first good news. The curse, the penalty of the law is death. But once you have died, the law ain't got nothing to hold over your head anymore. Once you have died, it's done. Right? There's no more penalty. There's no more curse out there waiting. It's done. It's, It's over. And so in a very real sense, if the curse of the law has been paid for you, then the law's dead to you. You can't do anything. That's good news. But here's the real kicker. Here's the big shocking surprise of the gospel. Paul didn't actually die. You and I, Still here. 
in order for the law's curse and penalty to be carried out, how is it that Paul can say, how is it that we can say that we've died to the law when clearly we're here? Verse 20, the glorious gospel of grace in our Lord Jesus Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. See, in God's reckoning, the way that he looks at it, it's as if we hung on the cross with Jesus. When the law's curse and penalty was carried out on him, it counts as having been carried out on us. And it has lasting implications Notice it says, I have been crucified with Christ. That's a little bit more complex construction than just saying, I was crucified. No, I have been. That's some perfect tense involved there, if my English grammar serves me right. That means it's an action in the past that has ongoing implication in the future. The consequences are still being felt of this action that happened in the past. We have been united to Christ in his death. And we are also united to him in his risen life. Theologians refer to this as our union with Christ. And it's huge, y'all. It's such a big deal. It's how we receive any benefit for what Christ has done for us. See, the only way that his death can count for us, the only way that his righteous life, like he was another, he's someone separate from us, the only way that what another has done can count for us is if we've been united to him. And so scripture is just overflowing with all of these references to us either being with him or in him or his being in us. Because we died with him, we now have life with him. And so understanding our union with Christ, I'm convinced, is something that every Christian needs to grow in. In significant ways. I think by and large it is one of the most under understood or misunderstood concepts in all of Christianity. It would be well worth a lengthy sermon series of its own. Dealing with tons of these texts that talk about being in Christ and Christ in us. But this morning let me just point out two things to you. Two things that I think are huge about our union with Christ. The first thing you need to really understand is that our being united to Christ, our union with Christ, is at the core of the gospel. I've already mentioned Christ lived a perfectly righteous life. The one that you and I should have lived but were unable to. He did it. He met the law's impossible demands. And because we are in him and he is in us, united, we benefit from his righteousness. We get the credit for what he has done as if we had done it 
because we're one with him. And of course, the death that he died to pay the penalty and take the curse for our sin, that counts as our death because we're one with him. Um, Phil Riken's commentary, uh, again, he, he's, he's put it so uh, beautifully and so concisely. The reason union with Christ is such a magnificent doctrine is that once we get into Christ by faith, then everything Christ has ever done becomes something we have done. It is as if we had lived his perfect life and died his painful death. It is as if we were buried in his tomb and then raised up to his glorious heaven. God attaches us to the events of Christ's life so that they become part of our lives. His story, the story of the cross and the empty tomb, becomes our story. So you've got to see union with Christ at the core of the gospel. The other thing is we've got to see how our union with Christ chases away the gospel boogeyman. See, as parents, we do a lot of things. We go to a lot of great lengths to keep boogeymen from upsetting our kids and therefore disturbing our sleep. Right? So we turn on lights and we look under beds and we open closet doors. We do all these things to chase away the boogeyman. Chasing away the gospel boogeyman is slightly different. See, getting rid of, of the fear and concern that faith alone in Christ without the requirement of obedience to God's law will somehow result in an increase in sin, in moral laxity and laziness, a lack of obedience. Chasing away that boogeyman requires understanding our union with Christ. Because when we understand our union with Christ, we see that that boogeyman, like all boogeymen, isn't real. Doesn't exist. Point number four, here's why we will obey. So return to our original question. If we're saved by faith in Christ alone without obedience to the law, then why obey? And see, when we begin to understand our union with Christ... We'll understand that because we are united to Christ, we can't not obey. Double negative there on purpose. We can't not obey. It's an impossibility to be united to Christ and not to make strides in our obedience. Now, there are several things that work here. Several reasons why a life marked by disobedience and immorality is an impossibility to the one united to Christ, to the one who's been crucified with him. Tons of reasons. I'm going to give you four briefly and we'll be done. Number one, when we die with Christ, and begin to live again the life that Christ lives in us. So that's all verse 20. So when we die with him and begin to live again the life that he lives in us, we're new people. Right? We, we died. The, the old person that we were died. When Christ raises us again with him, we're different people. We're new. We can't continue to live the same lives that we used to because that guy is dead. That girl, she ain't here anymore. 
We are new people. And then so 2 Corinthians 5.17 is a verse probably many of you have memorized and know. And it's the, it's the cornerstone here. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's what? He's a new creation. The old has gone, passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We're new people with new desires. The saying is the heart gets what the heart wants. And the heart don't want what it used to want. Because it's a different heart. It's a new heart. We can't continue in a life of sin and disobedience because that person no longer exists. Second reason. Look again at verse 20. It's all here. This new life we live, it says we live in the flesh. All right, so let's get real. All right, it's gritty. It's earthy. It's in the flesh, so yes, we're still going to sin. We're still going to blow it. All right, we're not going to be perfect in this life. But we're living by faith. We're living this new life the same way we began the new life. And that's by trusting Jesus. That's by trusting that his perfect life and his sacrificial death is all we'll ever need. It's all the power we'll ever need to battle sin and temptation. To make slow but certain progress. Third reason that union with Christ chases away the boogeyman. The life of faith that we live, it's motivated by love. Again in verse 20. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It was his love for me that motivated his sacrifice for me. That love changes and transforms me. To be loved like that changes you forever. There's no way. How, how, could, how could we possibly want to do the same things that we once did? If that's the case. Fourthly and finally. When we understand our union with Christ, the gospel boogeyman gets chased away. By the radical, transforming grace that union with Christ brings along with it. Verse 21. Paul tacks this on at the end. He says, I don't nullify grace by trying to get righteousness from the law. I realize, Paul says, that that only Christ's death can do that for me. And it is indeed a grace. It's freely received. And when it is received, it will not, will not, will not leave us as we are. Saving grace is transforming grace. It will radically change us from the inside out. So boogeyman, be gone. If I've been crucified with Christ... If I'm united to him, if we are in him, if he is in us, we will never, ever be the same. Let's pray.